Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, turn your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 14 in this second Sunday of Advent, looking at peace and what it means to be at peace with God. Uh, Of course, just as a reminder, we are taking a break from our normal habit of working through books of the Bible. We've been working through 1 Samuel, but we are taking a break over this, this season, this Advent season, to focus on the birth of Christ and these glorious words of Advent. So let me read our passage for us this morning. And then take a moment to pray and to ask for the Lord's help. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray together. Father, now we just want to pause as we do every single week and acknowledge our desperate need for your help as we come before the truth of your word. Father, we are so thankful for the truths. We just spent time singing together that you are our Savior through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, we are thankful that you came in the flesh and willingly laid down your life, taking the wrath that we deserved in our place. We're thankful that you victoriously, Jesus, rose on the third day. And because of that, we will one day join you in that resurrection and in the new heavens and the new earth and our glorified bodies. But until that day, you have graciously sent your spirit to dwell in us. And so, Father, we ask you to do what we ask every single week, that you would be at work in us by the power of your spirit through the truth of your word, changing us, transforming us, making us more like Jesus. Father, this morning, I pray that we would hear the good news of the peace that Christ has brought to everyone who trusts in him. Father, I pray that you would help us to not just know that intellectually, but that we would experience and feel and know what it means to be at peace with you. And so, Father, we ask for you to work in us. We ask for you to do the work for our good, and for the glory of your name, through the truth of your word this morning. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how does the world define peace, right? There are lots of different ways to answer that question. What does it mean to be at peace? And the reality is that in our world, almost all of those definitions, or at least the realities behind them, when you face the reality of it, they fall far short of what we would hope them to be. So, for example, there are many countries today that are at some level of peace with each other, right? We're at peace. We're not in the moment. We're not killing each other. But if you think about it for just a few moments, it's just a false peace because we have hundreds of nuclear warheads 
pointed at each other right now. And the world says, but we're at peace. And I say, I lay my head on the pillow of the night. I don't feel great about that, right? <laughs> it's a false peace. I just said peace rendered because two countries or, or multiple countries have the ability to wipe one another off the face of the earth. When one launches it, well, the other country is going to launch it. And then each country will be obliterated in a radioactive wasteland living through what would likely be a nuclear winter. And yet we say we're at peace. That's not real peace. It's not lasting peace. Now, there's all kinds of ways we try to make ourselves feel good about the world we live in. We try to think we're at peace. We try to fool ourselves into believing we're at peace. But as I mentioned, there's threats all around us. There's terrorist threats. There's threats in nuclear war. There's threats of natural disaster. We can't control the peace of our lives, even though we think we can. And we worry about those things. And I'm not saying we shouldn't worry about those things. But the unfortunate reality is the one thing we should be worried about, most people rarely think of. And that is that we, as humanity, are not at peace with God. That because of the fall, because humanity has rebelled against God, God in his righteousness and justice will execute his wrath on mankind. We, as we will see later, we are his enemies. We are children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, all of us. And so that though we may grasp at all these false definitions of peace, all these false peaceful hopes that we have no control over, that no one can guarantee, and we forget that we are under threat of greater significance than any nuclear warhead, any World War III, and that is threat of the wrath of God, except that threat is just and right, and it's what we all deserve. So how do we find peace in the midst of that reality? How do we find meaningful, lasting, eternal peace? Well, I think we actually can find the answer to that question in the angelic announcement, in the event surrounding the angelic announcement that we just read in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. We're going to see it here, even in the experience of the shepherds, how they move from great fear to a command to not fear at all, to then an announcement and declaration of peace on earth. So what moves the shepherds from great fear to being commanded not to fear to ultimately this declaration of peace on earth? And as we track with what happens to the shepherds, I think what we will see is that same reality is afforded to us as followers of Jesus, that we can move from great fear to no fear to having peace with God. So let's just move through this passage one step at a time. And here's the three steps we're going to see in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. Number one, a fearful encounter. Number two, that fear removed. And then number three, peace declared. Fearful encounter, fear removed, peace declared. So look there with me at verses 8 and 9 as we see the fearful encounter. You see there in verse 8, it says, in the same region. So let's just pause there and be sure we understand what this is talking about when it says the same region. As a reminder, earlier in chapter 2, we learned that Joseph and Mary, as well as the rest of the nation at that time, had to return 
to their hometown, essentially, because there was a census happening. They had to go be registered in their hometown. And so Joseph, with Mary, returns to Bethlehem so that he could be counted. You see that there in chapter 2, verse 4. They returned to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he, namely Joseph, was of the house and lineage of David. And so there's a lot happening here. There's a lot of travel happening with lots of people. They go to Bethlehem, and as you've read before, if you know the Christmas story, they arrive. There's no room in the inn, we are told, and so they have to lay Jesus when she gives birth in verse 7. They lay him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, all of those details will ultimately be relative as we move through the angelic announcement to the shepherds. But what I want you to see is that we're here. We are, we're there in the region of Bethlehem. And these shepherds are out of the field, as it says in verse 8, keeping watch over their flock by night. These guys were out having a peaceful, ordinary, normal evening, right? They're just normal, ordinary shepherds out in the fields of Bethlehem, tending to their sheep. Then in the middle of the night, verse 9 says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, it's easy to read over that quickly, that an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and not think about for a few moments what that experience must have been like. So first, an angel appeared to them. That in and of itself is a terrifying experience. Now, we talked about this when we went through the book of Hebrews not too long ago. When we were in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, we talked about how powerful and majestic these angels are. These are created beings. These are beings that God created. They are powerful and majestic beings. I know we've said this a lot as we went through Hebrews, but just as a reminder, angels are not cute little chubby figures, right? Angels are not even necessarily beings that look like glowing men with wings. We don't know exactly what this angel would have looked like, but there is plenty of evidence in the Bible that when people see angels, they are afraid, they are terrified, they are majestic beings. In fact, in the book of Revelation, when John is receiving the vision, an angel appears to John, and John falls down to worship the angel. He thinks the angel is God. That's how majestic these beings are, that the apostle John begins to worship. And the angel says, no, no, don't worship me. I'm not God. There's accounts in, in the Old Testament of an angel setting one foot in the sea and one foot on the shore, this massive being. So these are terrifying creatures. So the appearance of the angel itself would have struck fear in the hearts of these shepherds. But notice what else verse 9 says. And this is the part I think we rush past often when we read Luke chapter 2 because we read it every Christmas. We kind of just move through it without really pausing to think about it. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. So this is something separate than the appearance of the angel. This is the glory of God himself shining around the shepherds, around the angels, around this area where they were keeping watch over their flock by night. This isn't just light emanating from the angels. This is the glorious presence of God himself shining among them. So we find 
this description or descriptions of this appearance of the glory of God in a few different places in the Bible. One is Exodus chapter 24, verse 17. Moses is heading up the mountain to receive the law, the Ten Commandments, essentially. And he goes up and he's on the mountain. And Exodus 24, 17 says, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord, right? Same thing, the glory of the Lord in Exodus 24, 17. Same phrase as Luke chapter 2, verse 9, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Exodus 24, 17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. This is what the presence of the glory of God was like. It looked like a devouring fire on a mountain. And Luke chapter 2, verse 9 says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Or another example in Revelation chapter 21, John is giving a description of the new heavens and the new earth. And Revelation 21, 23 says this, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. This is the brilliance, the imminence of the glory of the Lord. It is so bright and overwhelming that in the new heavens and the new earth, it says there is no need of sun or moon to give light because the glory of God gives all the light that is necessary. This is what is surrounding the shepherds out in the middle of the field in the middle of the night. There's a terrifying angel that appears before them. And then verse 9 says, the glory of the Lord shines around them. It's an overwhelming and terrifying display in the fields of Bethlehem. And so the end of verse 9 says that they were filled with great fear. In fact, the original language says, with great fear they feared. Doubling of the word, with great fear they feared. These men were terrified. And this is the appropriate response under these circumstances. You would be terrified too. I would be terrified. This is how you ought to respond. And the reason, one of the reasons why this trembling and this fear occurred is one, it was overwhelming, but also they were in the presence of the glory of the Lord. And when you are in the presence of the glory of the Lord, you are undone because you realize that he is holy and you are not. This is what happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I, namely Isaiah, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, when people realize they're in the presence of God, they realize how unclean, how sinful, how far from his holiness they actually are. I mean, even in the New Testament, Luke chapter 5, Jesus tells Peter and some of the other disciples who've been trying to catch fish all night, he says, do it again. Throw your net on the other side and see what happens. So they do it. They throw the net in, they bring back in this overwhelming hole of fish. And in response to that, something clicks with Peter and he realizes I'm in the presence of a not ordinary man. And it says in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, 
when Simon Peter saw it, meaning what happened at the command of Jesus, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus's knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When you are in the presence of God, you realize your sinfulness, your wickedness, your uncleanness. And it's tempting to look at these experiences. It's tempting to see the experience of the shepherds in the presence of the holiness of God being filled with fear, seeing Isaiah in the presence of the Lord in the throne room being filled with fear and a sense of uncleanness. It's tempting to see Peter's situation of being in the presence of Jesus and realizing that he's unclean and thinking, well, those are all unique circumstances that happen to those individuals, but it's not going to happen to me. Well, here's the reality that the Bible teaches us. All of us one day will stand before the presence of a holy God. We will be there. We will experience what Isaiah experienced that day. We will experience to an even greater degree what the shepherds experienced that day. We will stand in the presence of the holiness and the glory of God. And you need to right now, I need to right now put away all arrogance, and pride about anything we, we may think and how we may act if we were ever in the presence of God, trying to face his glory in our own strength. We would be and will be undone if we stand before him in our own power and in our own strength. In fact, Revelation chapter 6 tells us exactly how even the most powerful people on the planet will react when Christ returns. How will the most powerful people on planet Earth respond when Christ returns and they are facing him down in their own strength and in their own righteousness? What will they do? Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 to 17 says, Then the kings of the earth, the kings of the earth, the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That is how we respond when we try to stand in the presence of God in our own strength and in our own power. As Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 reminds us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So yes, when the angel appears and the glory of the Lord shines around the shepherds, they are terrified and filled with great fear. But notice in verse 10, the very first words that the angel speaks is fear not. Now, how is that possible? How do you move from this great, overwhelming, terrifying fear to an angel being able to say to you, command you, fear not? don't fear. So let's see how unclean men standing in the presence of the glory of the Lord are able to have their fear removed. Second step, fear removed. Look with me at verses 10 through 12, verse 10, and the angel said to them, fear not. So just pause there. Reminder, I know I just mentioned it, but fear not is a command. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't an encouragement. This is the angel saying, you don't have to be afraid. He is commanding them to not be afraid. I mean, if you're the shepherds, you're thinking, I'm trying, right? I can't really help it. But the angel says, do not fear. And then he tells them why. Do you see that in verse 10? Fear not for behold. So he's going to give them reasons. That's what the word for means. Fear not. Here's why. 
Let me tell you why you can stand in the presence of the glory of the Lord. Let me tell you why you can have the glory of the Lord shining around you, and yet you need not fear. You can skip over. And this this is what's glorious. He says to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. So let's think about this for a minute. He doesn't say, I want to move you from great fear to not afraid. That would be incredible. But he doesn't move them from great fear to not afraid. He says, you should move from great fear to what? Great joy. The the contrast is intentional here. It's the same word. Great fear is the exact same word that's used in verse 10. Great joy. God wants us to move from great fear to great joy. How does that happen? How do you move from great fear to great joy? Well, he says it's because there is good news. There's something I need to say to you that you need to hear that will move you from great fear to great joy. And before we hear that news, here's the other glorious piece of information that the angel declares. This this good news of great and overwhelming joy, it's not just for the shepherds. It's not just for the people of Bethlehem. It's not just for Israel. What, what does verse 10 say? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It's for everyone, which is really good news for us because we're a part of that, all the people. It's for you and it's for me. And it is glorious good news that can move us from great fear to great joy. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we emphasize lighting, the Lighting Moon Christmas offering every Christmas, because what better way to celebrate the birth of Christ than to be reminded of what the angel said, that his birth brings good news of great joy for all the people. What better time to focus on the reality that this good news of the gospel is for everyone. It is for all nations and all peoples, for every tribe, tongue, and language. Therefore, we want to empower missionaries to go and to take this good news to the nations. But it is also really good news for us because it's not as if we're not a part of the nations. We're part of them. We're part of the all peoples. And this good news is for you and it's for me. So what is this good news? What is it? Look there with me at verse 11. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now listen, there is a ton of information packed into that brief announcement. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that statement, that's the good news that is meant to move us from great fear to great joy. So how does that sentence move us from great fear to great joy? Well, first and perhaps most obvious is that this good news is already happening. It says, unto you is born this day. Right now it's happening, shepherds. Right now. You don't have to wait a thousand years for this one, right? When God said to Eve in the garden, your seed is going to crush the head of the serpent one day. No, he says like, right now he, he's arrived. He's come. You don't have to wait anymore. It is this day that I'm talking about. It is the good news is this day. He's been born today. He's been born in the city of David. Well, why is that significant? Again, it was mentioned earlier in chapter two. Well, it's because Joseph had to return to Bethlehem, the city of David, because as earlier in chapter two, it says to us, Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, which means Jesus is of the house and lineage of David. And the reason that's important is because the Messiah, the long-awaited promised one, was to come from the line of David. 
And here he is. Here's the king we've been waiting for. He has arrived. So it is this day in the city of David, a savior. Now, in this context, savior could have meant a lot of different things. The shepherds could have interpreted this all kinds of different ways. Because one of the things the Jewish people were waiting for, thinking they were waiting for, would be a savior who would come as a mighty king to rescue them from the Roman occupation that they were enduring. That was the context that was happening here in Luke chapter 2. Rome was occupying Israel. And so when they hear, look, a Savior's come, it would have been very tempting to think, oh, that means he's going to come and wipe out the Roman Empire and rescue us from occupation. That's what this Savior is all about. But the reason we can't draw that conclusion from what is said is because of what we mentioned in verse 10. Who is this good news for? It's for all people. Guess who that includes? The Rome, the Roman Empire, the Roman citizens. It's good news for them too, right? It's for everybody. And so this isn't about destroying the Roman Empire. This isn't about bringing them from Roman uh, oppression. No, this is about something else. This is about God sending Christ as our Savior to, to defeat sin, to crush the head of Satan. It's about this good news of great joy that removes fear from us because Jesus has arrived as our Messiah. You see that at the end of verse 11? He is Christ the Lord. The word Christ is simply the Greek word for Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one that has been promised. He's the one who would come from Genesis 3 to crush the head of Satan. He's the one from Psalm 2 who would come to rule the nations. He's the one that David says is going to sit on his throne forever. He is the one that Isaiah 53 is going to be crushed for our iniquities. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. Even as a baby in the manger, the angel says he reigns supreme as Lord. And it is this news that is good news of great joy because it removes fear from us because Jesus has come to be our savior and to save us from the consequences of our sin. Because remember, the greatest threat to our peace is that we are enemies of God. But Jesus came and he willingly took on flesh. He did that because he had to become like us in every way so that we could join with him through faith. He did that so that he could die, so that he could bleed, so that his flesh could be torn, so that he could die on the cross, taking the wrath of God in our place so that we would not have to face it. He came and lived a perfect righteous life so that all who trust in him are given his righteousness. His righteousness, it's, it's called, it's, it's imputed to us. So, so through faith on the judgment day, when we have to stand in the presence of the glory of God, we are able to stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we are able to stand because what we deserve, the wrath and condemnation that we deserve in that moment has already been paid by Jesus on the cross. And this is the staggering response we are able to have. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now listen to this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
we move from what should be great, terrifying fear, being undone in the presence of God, calling for the mountains and rocks to fall on us so that we don't have to face Jesus because of the finished work of Christ. We move from that to boldly, with confidence, approaching the throne only because of Jesus. Not because of anything we have, but because we stand in his righteousness, because we stand in his salvific work on the cross. And because of that, we can move from great fear to great joy as the adopted sons and daughters of God who can approach his throne with confidence. That's why this is such good news for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the angel meant it for the shepherd. This is why they were supposed to stop fearing in that moment. They were terrified. The glory of the Lord shone around them. The angel says, fear not, because I've got really good news for you. A Savior is born for you this day, and he's going to save you from your sins. You don't need to fear anymore. He has arrived. And then he says, here's the proof. You're going to find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. He's the only one in Bethlehem in that situation. You're going to go and you're going to find him. So that brings us to our final step. We've seen a fearful encounter. We've seen the fear removed. And now what we see is no sooner than this angel gets the word manger out of its figurative mouth in verse 12, suddenly in verse 13, with the angel appears a multitude of the heavenly host. And so we move from a fearful encounter to fear removed to peace declared in verses 13 and 14. Now listen, I cannot imagine what this scene must have been like. I mean, it has already been an overwhelming experience for these shepherds. We've talked about it already. We don't need to belabor the fact, but this, this majestic angel has appeared to them. This overwhelming glory of the Lord has shone around them. And then all of a sudden it says immediately in verse 13, there was suddenly with this singular angel, a multitude of the heavenly host appears. We don't know what that number is, but it's a lot, right? Host is a word that's used for armies. An army of angels appears before them. Remember, one angel is terrifying. A multitude, a host of angels, I can't imagine, right? But this is the scene and they break out and they declare to the shepherds, verse 14, glory to God in the highest. They cannot contain themselves because the day they've been waiting for, for thousands of years has finally arrived. This is the pent-up praise of thousands of years waiting for the promised one of Genesis 3 who would come to crush the head of Satan. When is he going to come? When is he going to come? And when the angel declares he's come, they cannot contain themselves. Glory to God in the highest. The Savior has arrived. And the first thing they declare is on earth peace. Do you get the irony? An army of angels shows up to declare, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God, through this multitude of angels, this heavenly host, has come and declared peace to his enemies. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. There is no question about it that apart from Christ, you and I are enemies of God. And it is through the good news of a Savior who was born that day in Bethlehem that God comes and declares peace, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, with whom is he pleased? Hebrews eleven six says, and without faith, 
it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, which means how do we please him? We please him by trusting in the son. We please him by having faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, when we place our trust and our faith in Christ, the Bible tells us that we are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. When we place our faith in Christ, we are at peace with God. We see that throughout the Bible. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or even as we read earlier, Jesse and Hannah pointed us to Isaiah chapter 9 verse in the Advent reading, verses 6 and 7, talking about the Messiah who would come, who we know now to be Jesus. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. This is a lasting, a eternal peace, and there will be no end to it. Or John 14, 27, Jesus declares to the disciples, even when he leaves them, as he will one day have to leave them when he dies on the cross and he is resurrected and he ascends to the Father's right hand, he says to, uh, to them and to us, John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You don't have to fear anymore. You're now at peace with God. You don't have to fear anymore. Or Colossians chapter 1 verse 20, talking about Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is a blood-bought peace. You see, just as the shepherds were able to move from great fear in the presence of God to being commanded to no longer fear, to a declaration of peace over them. This is exactly what we experience in the gospel. We move from where we ought to be in a position of great and terrifying, overwhelming fear at the thought of having to face a holy God. But then we can heed the command to fear not because of the finished work of Christ. And when we heed that command to no longer fear that we, for all those who place our faith in Christ, then we were able to move to being at peace with God. And until that reality sinks in, that we are at peace with God, you will never find peace in any other area of your life. Any other peace you may think you have, any other peace you may think you have, by definition, cannot be guaranteed to you, and it will not last forever. It can't. There is one peace that is guaranteed to you. There is one peace that will last for all eternity. His peace will know no end. And it is the peace that Christ has bought for us on the cross. It is the peace that God's wrath is no longer against us. And it is knowing that we are at peace with God that allows us to be at peace in the midst of the chaos and turmoil of this world, because we can know that this is not our ultimate home anyway. This world is not our ultimate hope. Instead, we look to the new heavens and the new earth, where we will experience the peace of Christ for all eternity. And it was purchased for us by this child who was born in the city of David on that first Christmas day to allow us to no longer fear and to live in peace with God our Father. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this good news of the gospel. We thank you that we are now at peace 
Jesus, we thank you that you willingly came and took on flesh and that you came and were born in the city of David, that you were laid in a humble manger and that you came and took on flesh so that you could live a righteous, perfect, sinless life in our place so that that righteousness could become ours so that you could in perfect obedience to the Father, lay down your life on the cross in our place so that we would not have to face the wrath and condemnation that we fully deserved. So Father, I pray that you would create within all of us this morning an enduring and lasting experience of peace, Father, even when the turmoil and chaos and uncertainty of this world brings anxiety and worry and uncertainty. I pray that you would remind us that we have a certain blood-bought peace in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to rest in this good news of great joy. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.